Well, good morning. It is a joy to welcome you here today, those here at our 930 service, those also attending our cafe service that we have not met. Uh, my name is David and I serve as a senior pastor here and uh, this is my expression of Christmas joy that I wanted to share with you. So uh, all over our campus, hopefully you, you see that and you are experiencing that. Um, I, I want to tell you what someone said to me last week after the 11 o'clock service, uh, a, a very sweet woman. Uh, came up to me and she said, uh, Pastor David, can I tell you something? I said, sure. And she said, well, I don't want to offend you, which nothing good's going to come after that, right? Like, I don't want to offend you. She's totally serious. I don't want to offend you. I said, well, what is it? And she said, that suit is really ugly. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, I, I know. So, I, I hope you're having a great Christmas. Uh, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open that to two passages of Scripture, uh, Isaiah chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 1. Isaiah is about the middle of the Bible. Matthew uh, is the first of the four Gospels, uh, the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, if you uh, didn't bring your Bible today in all of our worship spaces, we have blue Bibles available for you, and uh, those page numbers correspond to the pages in that blue Bible that you can find those there. Uh, and as you locate both of those scriptures, uh, I want to say a word about next weekend. Next Sunday, you may not have looked at the calendar yet, but next Sunday is the 23rd of December. And if you look on the inside of your bulletin, you'll, you'll see that we begin Christmas Eve services on the 23rd of December. We have them on the 23rd and the 24th. Uh, but just so that there isn't any confusion, I want you to know everything that's going to be happening next weekend. So over the course of three days, 22nd, 23rd, and the 24th, we're going to have 17 services, okay? We're going to have six weekend services, which is what we have every single weekend. So all of our normal weekend services will happen on the 22nd, 23rd, and then beginning that afternoon, we'll begin our Christmas Eve services. We have 11 of those. So we appreciate your prayers uh, as we uh, share next weekend, but, but, but seriously, we love, uh, this is, this is going to be one of my favorite weekends of the year. I know uh, it, it's, it's an exciting time. We love seeing everyone uh, at Christmas Eve, and it's, it, it's just an incredible time to be together. All of these uh, uh, 11 Christmas Eve services will end the exact same way with the passing of the light of Christmas uh, among all who are gathered, the singing of Silent Night, uh, lots of different opportunities. You can find those uh, in your bulletin. The other thing I want to point out to you, which I did last week as well, are these three times, 4, 6, and 8 p.m. Uh, you'll notice that at 4 o'clock on both days, uh, each of these times, uh, they're identical services at 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and 8 o'clock. And that is because on the 24th, we know that these will be our three largest services. Uh, and each of these three services will have every seat in the house filled. Uh, including seats that we bring in, we'll have people shoved wherever we can find them, wherever we can place them. Uh, and so here's what happens on Christmas Eve. Uh, when we finish our four o'clock service, which is around five o'clock, there'll be about 150 people who are outside ready to come in for the six o'clock service. Not because our, our service is two hours long, but they know I wanna get here early so I can get a pretty good seat. And then the first time guests arrive at six o'clock, 
and they get stuck in the very far corners and it's not the best experience for our guests. So if you, if it works for your family to come on the 23rd to the identical service, we'd love for you to come on the 23rd uh, so that our first time guests have a great experience on the 24th. Now don't hear that as the pastor telling you not to come to Christmas Eve on, on Christmas Eve, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying that, I'm simply saying that if you choose to come on the 23rd, I want you to know that you are also blessing someone who may be experiencing our church for the very first time uh, at those particular hours. So there's, there's the note about Christmas Eve. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this theme, this is Christmas, and, and the idea that there are things that we naturally associate with this season, that things that we see and we hear and we experience, and we cannot help but think, this is Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. We talked in the first week about the many traditions that we each have in our families uh, when it comes to Christmas, uh, unique to our own experience and often the uniqueness or perhaps the oddity of the traditions that we have are only made aware to us when someone else experiences Christmas with us or we experience Christmas with someone else. So for newlyweds, this always happens. You experience Christmas at your in-laws and you find yourself thinking, this is the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. Why in the world do these people do that? And, and vice versa, you go to the other family's house and oh, this is, this, this, this is weird, this is not normal. And so for us, uh, for my wife and I, I remember that first year, uh, uh, my wife Stephanie loves to make lots of Christmas goodies. Uh, and, and so that first, first year she said, I'm gonna make some Chex Mix. You know what Chex Mix is, right? It's, you know, all these things you put, put in this, you got seasoning, all that kind of stuff. Well, in my family, we call that trash. I don't know why we call it trash. What a horrible name for food, but we call it trash. Uh, but I know what, you know, I know trash is Chex Mix. And so I, I thought, well, this is great. You know, she's gonna make some trash. She's gonna make some Chex Mix. And so she goes to make it and she finishes it, brings it out of the oven. And I take a bite and I'm, and I'm like, this is awful. I mean, this is not Chex Mix. This is not trash. These, there are things in here that do not belong. Why would you put this in, in, in Chex Mix? And so at our house now, we have two kinds of Chex Mix every single year. We have the right kind of Chex Mix and we have, and we have Stephanie's kind of Chex Mix. It was just weird. It's just weird stuff. All of these things that we know, they don't necessarily connect with the Christmas story. They don't necessarily connect with what happened in Bethlehem. That there, there weren't roasted chestnuts or cheese ball or eggnog or no one was singing jingle bells uh, in Bethlehem. And you may wonder, why did he include cheese ball? Cheese ball's terrible. That's because you haven't had my mom's cheese ball, just so you know. But none of these things necessarily connect with the, the Christmas story, but they're valuable to us. And that's okay, that's, that's meaningful to us because it grounds us in our identity, reminds us of the, the power of, of family. But there are other things that are a part of Christmas that do connect with the Christmas story and invite us to, to understand in a, a more significant way what, the, what happened in Bethlehem means for us and means for the world. And some of those are immediate connections, some of those are more, more subtle and we may not even realize it. And that's probably the case today because what I wanna talk about today, you, you may not make any immediate association with the Christmas story. It, it may surprise you. Today we're talking about Christmas Christmas trees. And, and probably most of us have a Christmas tree at home, our Christmas day festivities, or whenever we gather with family and friends to share gifts, there's a Christmas tree there at the center of, of that gathering and gifts are shared that have been placed under that tree. Most of us have no idea 
why we do that or where that comes from. So let me just give you a little bit of history for the one or two people here this weekend who would actually care about the history of the Christmas tree. Uh, Most believe that in its Christian roots, uh, it originated in Germany. And uh, one of the stories uh, that has been passed down uh, generation to generation about where the Christmas tree began was with a, a German Catholic priest named Martin Luther. Now that name may be familiar to you because Luther broke away from the Catholic Church and was a leader in what is known as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Luther would lead, uh, would go on to start the Lutheran Church. Get that? Luther, Lutheran, okay. Uh, but, But Martin Luther's walking home one day during the Christmas season and he finds himself looking up through the trees and he sees the stars. And he's reminded of the star that was over Bethlehem, the star that led the shepherds uh, to Bethlehem. And and he finds himself just marveling at this this image of the stars and, and the way in which they are visible through the branches of the tree. So he goes home and he cuts down a tree and he puts it in his house and then he makes the highly questionable decision in terms of fire safety uh, of placing candles in the tree to represent the light, the stars. And, and that's evidently in its Christian roots where this practice began. Now, it leaves Germany um, hundreds of years later. Uh, some of you know, may know this part of the history. Queen Victoria married Prince Albert. Prince Albert was from Germany and Albert brings this practice. There's a very famous picture of Victoria and Albert decorating her Christmas tree. It becomes a practice in England. It's eventually brought here. So that's why we have Christmas trees. But what in the world does that have to do with the Christmas story and the passages uh, that we're going to read today? Let's see if we can make a connection. So I'm going to read to you uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. You've already heard verse 1 and 2. I'm going to read those to you again, as well as the four verses that follow. Uh, Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. Let me see if I can unpack this for you a little bit. So you see there in verse six, this image of a wolf living with a lamb, the, uh, the, the uh, leopard lying down with the goat. It reminds us of some imagery that we find in Isaiah chapter two. Isaiah talks about all the nations coming to the mountain of the Lord and God judging between the nations, the nations bringing their swords and beating them into plowshares bringing their spears and allowing them to be transformed into pruning hooks. It's an image of peace. 
It's an image of nations bringing to the mountain of the Lord weapons that have been used for destruction and those being transformed into tools that might cultivate the earth and help it grow. It's an image of peace, uh, the peace that God will bring as, as justice and righteousness is, is restored. And we have the same kind of imagery, imagery here in verse 6 uh, where we see the, the, the wolf with the lamb and the leopard with the goat. We have, we have peace and we have harmony and that happens because of the one who comes. The one on whom the spirit of the Lord rests, the one who will judge with wisdom uh, and, and might, will have the knowledge and fear of the, war, uh, of, the, of the Lord and the origin of this, this one who will come. What we read in verse 1 is that he will be a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. So what in the world does that mean? Well, let's start with who Jesse was. Well, Jesse was the father of King David. And King David was, uh, he was the one who was associated with, with uh, Israel at its height. Not only the height of, uh, of Israel's uh, power, but also the, the height of their connection to God. David was described or is described in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. He was one who lived faithfully before the Lord. Why is it uh, described as a stump? Well, because of what has already happened in the northern kingdom and what will soon happen in the southern kingdom, foreign adversaries will come in and take over Israel. And so the line of David, David to his son Solomon, that line will be severed, it will be broken. All that will be left is a stump. But from that place of death, Isaiah says, God will bring new life. You remember last week, if you were here, that we said we're going to be reading from Isaiah to remind us that the Christmas story doesn't begin with what Mary receives from an angel in Nazareth or with the journey to Bethlehem, that it really begins in the very beginning of the scriptures. And the roots of Christmas are here in the writings of the prophets, writings that, that are almost, that, that date to almost a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Now, one additional note about these trees. In Israel, where Isaiah lived and, and those who originally heard his message and those uh, who, who were living at the time of Jesus, there are no Douglas firs, there are no Virginia pine trees, okay? So these, these things that decorate our homes, that's not the kind of trees that we're talking about. What you find when you're in Israel are olive trees. And, and let me just show you a couple pictures. The first one is one that I took uh, at a, uh, an olive wood factory in Bethlehem. And, and if you go to the Holy Land, Everywhere you go, you will find olive wood carvings. It's the, it's the most prominent gift that people bring back or souvenir uh, that they bring to, to a loved one. And, and so here you see all the raw material that is there in this factory. And, and these olive wood carvings are found in such abundance that by the time I, I made my second trip, I found myself wondering, where in the world does all this olive wood come from? Because there's not like just thousands of trees everywhere you go. So where, where, do, where does the raw material come from? And so I asked someone the second time I was there at this factory, where does all, the, all this olive wood come from? And what he said first was this, he said, it comes from olive trees. <laughs> I said, well, that's helpful, but, 
there doesn't seem to be enough olive trees to supply all of the resources that you need for all of these carvings. And he said, oh, that's because you can cut all the branches of an olive tree off and the olive tree will continue to grow. It's just one of the things that's unique about olive trees. And so here's another picture. This is actually a olive tree in the garden of Gethsemane. So the way in which you date uh, uh, how old an olive tree is, isn't by its height, but how wide it is at its base. This actually isn't the largest or the oldest olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, that's where Jesus went to pray on the the night that he was arrested. Uh, But those who are experts in olive trees, whoever those people are, whatever you call them, uh, they believe that there are several trees, including this one, that are thousands of years old, perhaps dating back to the time of Jesus. And, And you look at this picture and you see here a new shoot coming out from from this base. And again, it's not a tall tree, but it's one that the branches you can continually cut off, you can use them, but the tree will continue to grow. It will continue to bear fruit. So that brings us to Matthew chapter one. If you'll flip over to Matthew chapter one, and here's the good news. I'm not gonna read to you all 17 verses uh, of the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter one, because this is the part of the Bible that if you read the Bible, this is the part that you skip. I mean, you're like, I'm not going to read that. This is the genealogy. This is so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And I know that when you get there, you cannot help but think, how in the world is this going to change my life? Why do I need to know all of the generations that preceded Jesus? So I'm not going to read all of it to you, but I do want to point out a couple things to you. First, look at verse six and notice Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. So, so notice the connection there between Isaiah chapter 11, again, words written almost a thousand years before the birth of Jesus and the genealogy that is shared here. But there's another thing about this genealogy that is really somewhat strange and in the way in which Matthew records, it's very uncharacteristic of the way in which a lineage was traced at this particular time in that it includes the names of four women. And that just wasn't how you did it at that time. You, you trace lineage from fathers to sons. Uh, and, and again, you might also notice it's not all of the wives that are included. There's, there's four that are mentioned. And let me just tell you a little bit about the four women that Matthew chooses to include in his uh, genealogy of, of Jesus, those that led to the birth of Jesus. The first one is a woman named Tamar. You see her name in verse three. You find Tamar's story in Genesis 38. And that story is so awful, I don't even think I can tell it in church. I mean, it's in the Bible, you can go read it, but I I just don't feel comfortable telling it to you. It's an awful, awful story. It is a story that if it was a part of your family, whether it was several generations before you or maybe uh, in the generation that you're a part of, you wouldn't want anyone to know about this story. I mean, it's a terrible story. You can go read it again, Genesis 38. Then you get to verse five and you find this name Rahab. Now, who is Rahab? Rahab was a, to be generous, a lady of the night uh, who lived in Jericho. She was not an Israelite. She was a Gentile. Uh, But when Joshua and his army came to Jericho and the spies entered the city, Rahab hid the spies. And so her life was spared and she became a part of this family, this woman with a very questionable past. And then just a few generations after Rahab, you find another woman's name, uh, Ruth. 
And you think, well, I know that. They named the book of the Bible after her. She must be really important, right? Well, Ruth was also someone who was not an Israelite. She was a Gentile, and yet she is included here in the lineage of Jesus. And just by the way, to marry someone who was not an Israelite at this time, it was more than just frowned upon. Like, you just didn't do this. It was awful. It was a stain on your family. And yet, here in just a few generations, Matthew very specifically records two non-Israelites in the lineage of Jesus. And then we get to the end of verse six. Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew doesn't even tell us what her name is. We know from 2 Samuel that her name was Bathsheba. And the reason that she is referred to as being Uriah's wife in the past tense is because King David had Uriah, one of his best soldiers, murdered. And he had Uriah murdered because he wanted Bathsheba as his wife. And so this king, who again is described as a man after God's own heart, one who wrote many of the Psalms that we read, this is the worst moment in his life. This is an incredible abuse of power. If you want to read about David's, how broken he was when he finally faced the the incredible, the, the harmful nature of his sin, just go read Psalm 51, which he wrote pleading to God for forgiveness for this horrible wrong that he had done. And yet here in the lineage of Jesus, here we have specifically mentioned Bathsheba, and this, this very uncomfortable part of, of the Old Testament story. So we have two, we have two stories, they're just awful stories. And then we have the inclusion of two non, non-Israelites and, and it would be appropriate for you to ask the question, why? Why would Matthew do such a thing? Why would he include the names of these four women? Last week we talked about that Christmas is meant to again expose our need of a savior. That part of what Christmas is meant to do in the depths of our souls is to remind us that we don't have it all together. And though we show up at church every weekend and we have ourselves all cleaned up and and, and looking nice, we know that that for some of us life is just a mess. And, And for some of us, when we think about the mess of our life, we cannot help but think, I made this mess, that we make decisions often that harm our, uh, ourselves and, and harm others, that, 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 that sin, that's what it's referred to in the scriptures, this, this desire that we have that sometimes leads us down a path of destruction, it, it creates in us a need for someone to come and to not only set the world right again, but to also set us right again to restore us, to somehow reconcile us, not only reconcile us to God, but reconcile us to one another. We need a savior to come. And the gift of Christmas, what we celebrate at Christmas is that savior has come in Jesus, this this boy born in Bethlehem. But I think we respond to that story in a couple different ways. One of the ways is we sometimes think, well, that's just too good to be true. There's some who simply would just dismiss their own need and say, you know what, I've got it all together, I don't need any help. Uh, 
I'm doing just fine. There's some who would just deny the story thinking, well, it's too fantastic. It doesn't make sense to them. It's, it, it's not something that they find believable. But I know for others, the response is that, well, that's a great story. But that's a story for someone else. That's not a story that could ever include me. And there's lots of reasons why people find themselves believing that. But what nurtures that is the regret that we have in our life. It's the guilt that we feel over a circumstance that may have occurred in our life or, or perhaps an issue that has lingered for, for a long time. Uh, a bondage that we have to an addiction that just we cannot seem to break free. Maybe it's just the shame that we have in our life because of something that's happened, something that we've experienced in our life. For many of us, we, we picture our lives as this, in this way. We are, we think of ourselves as those who are cut off. Those who, because of what's occurred in our life, we have somehow been severed from being a part of this story. It's a great story, we think. But it doesn't really include me. And so today, as we are on the, on the brink of, of Christmas, I want to challenge you in a couple different ways. Uh, even if this is not where you are in your life, you may think to yourself, well, you know, I'm someone who is seeking to not, I've not only received God's grace, but I'm seeking to live in God's grace every single day. Even if this isn't something that you struggle with, I want to remind you that you know someone in your life who does. And you know someone in your life who always will until grace breaks through. And if you are one of those who find yourself thinking, I'm just not sure that story includes me because I can't seem to keep my life together. I can't seem to somehow make this all work. I want you to hear that, that when Matthew shares his account, when he sits down to write, his account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I want you to understand that he very intentionally includes these four stories for a very intentional purpose. Matthew wants every single individual who will ever read this account to know from page one that this is a story for everyone. That if you think your life isn't all together, go read Genesis 38. Or go read 2 Samuel and see the awful, awful things that happen in the life of King David. If you, if you found yourself at a place where you think, well, I just made a mess out of everything. From, day, from page one, Matthew wants to be very clear. This is a story for everyone and Jesus has come for all. That none of us have been cut off and left behind. None of us are alone. God seeks after all of us. The Savior comes for all of us. And guilt and shame and regret, I want you to hear this very carefully. They are telling you a lie about your life. And for whatever reason, you are choosing to believe it, but it is not true. It is not true. This is a story for everyone. 
This is the good news. This is what the gospel is all about, that out of darkness and death, God can bring light and God can bring life from the stump of Jesse's tree. Out of the destruction and loss of Israel, out of the hope of generations that someone would come out of darkness and death, God brings light and God brings life. And regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what your struggle might be, God can do that in your life too. God can do that in your life too. And, and if you're here today and you're, you're one of those, again, who you've received that grace, you get this, you understand this part of the story. I just want to challenge you to remember there's someone in your life, there's someone that you know, you may share life with them every single day, there's someone who doubts their worthiness of being a part of this story. And I want to challenge you to not give up on them. Because you may, you may be right on the brink of that. You may think nothing's ever going to change in this person's life. I've asked, I've invited, I've done all I can. All I hear is no. Don't give up on the idea that out of darkness and death, God can bring life and God can bring life, uh, light. Uh, some of you know that a couple weeks ago, uh, we, my family, uh, uh, my, my uncle passed away. And I did the closing prayer at my uncle's funeral uh, because my family and planning the service, they wanted everybody to do something. And so they got all the pastors to do something. So I did the closing prayer. And I got up and the first thing that I said was, over the course of my life, I never really had a good relationship with my uncle Jamie. And the reason for that is because my uncle Jamie was never nice to me. But over the last few years, as my uncle Jamie wrestled with cancer, God did something in his life. And so in August, when we went and celebrated his birthday, we went up to his house in Hazlitt and, and we prepared to leave, my uncle Jamie walked me to my car, which he'd never done before. And he shook my hand, which he'd never done before. And he said, thank you for coming, which he had never done before. And then he hugged my wife, Stephanie, which he had never done before. And we got in the car and the first thing that Stephanie said was, Jamie hugged me. Because <laughs> God had done something in his life. And he was someone, I just got to be honest with you, he's someone I had totally given up on. And maybe there's someone in your life like that too. And if there is, I just want to remind you, there's 17 opportunities to invite him to church next weekend. <laughs> 17. And I don't care how many times you've heard no. Part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to stay committed to the idea that God has called us to love people into the truth to allow God's grace to break through the lies that may hold them in bondage. And 11 of those services that we have next week, they're all about this central idea that out of darkness, God brings, God brings light.
But as you gather this Christmas and you gather around those Christmas trees, I also want you to think about what that really means. This beautiful flourishing tree that it's at the center of our Christmas experience, what does it represent? It represents new life. It represents the shoot from Jesse's stump. It represents the, the tree that has grown out of this, this experience of death and darkness. It's Jesus there at the center of your Christmas experience. And I pray that that idea alone would bless you as you think about what Christmas means for you, but also what Christmas means for everyone in our world. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray that, that our trees would serve as a reminder of what Christmas is all about. That you would bless us, Lord, with an awareness of how great a gift we receive when we think about Bethlehem's story and the child who comes to bring peace and restoration and new life. I pray, Lord, that grace and love and peace will triumph over guilt and shame and regret in the lives of many this Christmas. Some who may be here today, some who may be here next weekend. We pray, Lord, for that story, that, that grace that you bring, we pray for it to break through and for truth to reign in our lives and our hearts as we think about what Christmas really means. Out of darkness, in the midst of death, you bring light and you bring life. And for these gifts, Lord, we give you thanks, praying that you will lead us to share them with others. In Jesus' name, amen.